<clears throat> All right, last week um, we'd started Acts chapter 6, and I thought, well, I'll get a little bit further ahead. But Acts chapter 6, in you know, the very beginning of Acts chapter 6, um, is where a lot, you know, a lot of people might go, you know, if you're going to teach at a pastor's conference or something, and you want to talk about, um, you know, picking men to help uh, disciple others or to, you know, church structure. You know, that's, that's kind of where a lot of people the very, you know, go to for those, in those verses for instruction uh, along those means. Um, and so if you've heard a sermon along those lines, sometimes maybe what, what might get lost is really like the, the whole point of that beginning passage. And again, that's, that's not wrong to go do those things because it is instructive to see what the early church did. But those, those first, um, you know, seven verses uh, really highlighted an issue that came up, and it, it kind of then sets a bridge to what we're going to see that gets highlighted even even further, expanded on further, uh, what we'll see today. And so we're going to cover a lot of ground, but the issue that was uh, came up was that there were widows, and we talked about, you know, widows, you know, being, uh, um, having a need uh, at that time, um, if they're did not have a husband, then financially they would have been in uh, maybe worse shape than, than others. And so there was a daily distribution of food. And so those that were um, Hellenists or uh, Greek-speaking were being neglected over those widows who were Hebrew. And they probably either spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. So it was really a language and sometimes a cultural issue that tended to say, hey, there's this issue going on in this church and this group is being neglected, they're feeling marginalized, they're feeling overlooked. And so the apostles said, one, our primary focus is that we are need to be in prayer and the ministry of the word. That's really Jesus just left. You know, again, this could be a you know a year to maybe a couple years later, but we probably said around around a year within that time frame, you know, 18 months. Um, and that they are still continuing to minister because the church is growing and people are coming and they need to have that as their primary responsibility. So they selected seven men um, of a good reputation, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit that would uh, take care of this matter. And one of those gentlemen was named Stephen. And that's where we're going to kind of pick up today and see um, what's going on. But kind of as a side issue, maybe not side issue, it's probably what, what central, it's kind of said right at the very end, that the, the word continued to increase, verse 7, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, if we kind of go back up a couple lessons earlier, the apostles had just gotten arrested by the priestly class and, and uh, you know, the, they were angry with the apostles and then sent them out, um, trusting that one of their leaders said, you know, if this dies out, it's not of God, but if it is, we can't stop it. Well, it's not dying out. And some of their ranks are actually leaving to go become, follow Jesus. And so you kind of get that kind of te- background tension, what may be happening, um, as we see somebody who's internally recognized in the church be kind of recognized for that, and then we see him play a prominent role today. Um, so... We'll kind of kind of go through this. We're going to see kind of different different actions, but really, what we get to the heart of in this passage is rebellion in the heart of man, um, and we're going to see that. That's going to be uh, uh, some of the argument that's being made. But the first thing that we see in verse eight is uh, Stephen's actions. Stephen's actions. We see, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Um, what do you make of uh, the description about Stephen? It says that he was full of grace and power. 
you hear that term, what, what, would you, what would you think that indicates about Stephen and who he is and maybe something about him? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so very high description uh, about who who Stephen is. Maybe humble um, in uh, in his actions. Um, what else do you think? Okay. Okay. Uh, we did it. We did in uh, our community group. We did a study uh, Andrew Murray's book um, on humility, and one of the things that he said that was uh, was. One of the things of, of what humility is, and there's kind of different angles to see humility, is basically allowing God to be his full self within you. That, like, like John the Baptist's uh, uh, statement where he said, you know, I must decrease and he must increase. That idea that um, you are humble, humble, humbled where then God can work fully through you. And I think that's you know, maybe what we see here. All the descriptions about Stephen so far, and that we'll even see, are, are very positive, very high. Like, this is a, one of the top men that, you know, when people think about him and describe him, that he's somebody, we just say maybe in one word, that he was godly, and probably an example to follow. And so that he says he was full of grace and power. And so at this time, in this, this time of his life, and even what we're going to see, that, that this is being demonstrated um, here in his life. Uh, now it says that he's doing these things, that, that great si- wonders and signs were being done among the people. Um, who else have we seen doing great wonders and signs? Okay, so the apostles have, have had that description. Specifically, we saw that you know, a chapter ago with Peter, right, walking through the streets, and that kind of led to, again, maybe some of the jealousy of the, the, uh, um, the Jewish leaders uh, because people were coming to be healed and just hopefully they could touch his shadow, you know, and, and that they would be healed. Uh, who else was described as having great wonders, doing great wonders and signs? Jesus, yeah, Jesus himself. And so uh, right in that vein of Jesus and Peter and, you know, and some of the other apostles and Stephen, right in that line. So we see like, you know, that, that these gifts weren't just for a particular group of people, but they were being displayed in other people as well as the Lord was working through them during this time. And this was a unique time in the church um, for these things to be done. And there was great need amongst the people, and we see that Stephen has this power as well. Remember, those seven, when they were brought before the apostles, like the apostles laid their hands on them and prayed for them to, to take care of the distribution. And I think you know some of that was also that uh, bestowing of the Holy Spirit and His power in order to do that. You know, usually the Holy Spirit is working through those that were recognized. And we'll see that in other examples as well. Did you have something to say, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, there was one that came to mind was um, that the most famous prophet back in the Old Testament, Elijah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was Yeah, and you see that at time too, and it's kind of interesting, like, when you read through, like, all of a sudden these two major prophets kind of pop up, and they do all these, like, crazy signs, you know, th- you know s- 
like multiplying oil and you know raising axe heads from rivers and things like that. And it's a time of like where the leadership was in great wickedness, right? Like the you couldn't look to the kings for advice, and so these prophets were the ones like, oh, maybe they're the ones who we're supposed to listen to. And so, um, you know, so so we kind of see that maybe maybe there is some parallel to that. Um, and so, so this is what we see Stephen doing. Probably not limited just to Stephen. We know it's not limited just to Stephen. It's Peter and there's probably others. Um, but we see that at this time, the Jews' opposition. Verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. We kind of started talking last week, you know, uh, about what a synagogue was, even though we didn't talk about, you know, it wasn't in those verses, um, but it needed to be brought up because when we talk about the Hellenists and the Hebrews, it was likely that there, you know, I I mentioned that there was already kind of um, differences about where people might have uh, gone to go for their teaching. Um, And so a synagogue is, is really that word means an assembly, and they were... um, started to pop up during, remember I said, the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's that intertestament, you know, a period where there is no scripture written. But it was during that time um, where Jews had kind of been dispersed for one reason or another due to different uh, empires, Babylon, Assyria, even the Greeks and uh, some others. Um, that as they dispersed, that they wouldn't be making their way back to the temple, um, or they, they would have limitations for doing that. And so they would meet in these synagogues, and they would, teach, they would uh, read scripture. And so it was basically like a, in, a, in cities where they would congregate in order to continue uh, hearing God's word um, spoken. Well, if we talk, you know, just as we said, there's lots of different churches, and sometimes even cultural churches. There's like Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, and you know, some of those, those are usually where you kind of think of, of uh, along international lines. And there would have been those that spoke Greek, and they would have read the Greek uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint, and then there would have been those that would have read the Hebrew um, Old Testament, written in Hebrew, and they might have spoken either Hebrew or Aramaic. Probably spoken Hebrew there, but generally in public, they might have spoken Aramaic. So we see kind of, they went to different churches, and so they had kind of different, you know, um, places they did, cultural groups. Um, I remember we were at a, a party, uh, you know, yesterday, we were at Chuck E. Cheese, and uh, right next to us there was a family, I don't know where they were from, but you could tell they were probably, you know, Eastern European, and they all spoke, you know, were spoken that language, and they, you know, it was kind of interesting when they kind of were together, you're like, oh, I see kind of, you know, they dressed in a different way, like kind of distinct and, and some of that, but they, they kind of had that, you know, interaction with each other, and so you just kind of would see that, that people kind of interact within party lines at a party, right, when there's a bunch of different groups uh, with that. And so that's what was maybe happening, why the Hellenist Jews were being overlooked. But we see that here, that these groups, um, that Stephen was being opposed by these different representatives of these different synagogues. And so uh, scholars think that it's likely three different synagogues um, or three different groups that met together. And one of them was called the Freemen. It's a word that was... uh, from Latin, uh, uh, which means a libertine. It was like libertini, and that was just basically uh, what the, the Greek was um, that was described. And so a libertine is somebody who's been given liberty. 
And so there's kind of three different groups. It really doesn't matter who these groups are. But one is, these could either be those that used to be Roman slaves, and and there was a huge slave population in in Rome during that time. Slaves did a lot of the work, depending on the the time period. Um, But those that were freed and then converted to Judaism. So that could be one, and then made their way down to Jerusalem for one reason or another. So that could be one group. It could be, uh, in 63 B.C., there was a group that... um, uh, under Pompey, or uh, he, he was one, a Roman general, um, that he had conquered that area and he'd brought back a lot of Jewish slaves. And so it could be those Jews who then were now free and they had made their way back and became a synagogue. So one is non-Jews that became Jews but were former slaves. And these were Jewish slaves that became free later on. And then a third is, you know, maybe it's uh, actually the term should have been a, a Libyan, but you know, which would have been a geographical area. Well, one reason I don't think it's that is because that kind of points to the next group, uh, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. So you got one group that was kind of known for like maybe their background, you know, what, what, what they had come out of, and that was just kind of how they were referred to. I mean, that's what it says in Scripture, as they were called. Um, and then we have the Cyrenians and Alexandrians. Now, uh, Cyrene and Alexandria were cities, major cities in North Africa, Alexandria being in Egypt, and uh, Cyrene being kind of near Carthage, but in, in North Africa and in Libya. And uh, they had high Jewish populations. We know that in Alexandria, that's where uh, a lot of the work for the Septuagint was done. And also in Cyrene, um, there would later be in AD 73, a huge revolt among Jewish people and Greeks. And uh, the revolt was so bad that um, it left basically an underpopulated group because of the massacres that was occurring. So there were huge Jewish populations in those areas that were probably meeting in that kind of North African. So you got one of what your background was and maybe culturally because you were either a Roman citizen or you were a slave or you're some other um, distinction. And so that that would have been something that they would have kind of followed with them. Um, And then the last one was Cilicia and Asia. And so Cilicia is just north of Jerusalem in Asia Minor, kind of Southeast Asia Minor. And Asia is usually referring to Asia Minor, which we know today as Turkey. Um, And so we've kind of got these three different Groups And some scholars think that maybe these three groups met in the same location, the same facility, just at different times. It would be, you know, maybe if like churches shared a building and met at different times. And so that could be the reason why they were all congregated together or they happened to be kind of being together in their advancements against Stephen. But for whatever reason, we have like people from, from these distinct synagogues or these people groups rising up against Stephen. What do they all share in common? They all shared in common that they wouldn't be from Jewish descent, uh, strictly speaking, that they would have been more uh, Hellenistic in probably how people would have referred to them or classified them. They would have had that kind of connection together. We said Stephen is a Greek name, and so he likely might have been part of this synagogue before he became a Christian. So, again, reading a little bit into it, but knowing some about this background and what Stephen's background is, or at least knowing his name, it's possible that he's going back, you know, and just, like, he's known among the people. Remember, the seven that were brought forward were those who had a good reputation amongst the people. And if they had a good reputation among the Christians, probably had a good reputation amongst the Jews when he was, when he was a Jew. So... <clears throat> um, what was the source, as they were arguing with Stephen, what was the source of Stephen's arguing? 
says they cannot withstand him because he because because why? How is how is Stephen disputing with them? Okay, the wisdom in the spirit, right? And so you know, basically it says that no matter what they threw at him, Stephen just came back. You know, referring probably to scripture. We're going to see some of his arguments in the future, well versed in the Old Testament, probably just coming back at them. Um, with some of their arguments. You're trying to do this, you're saying this, and Stephen's like, well, what about this, and what about that? And so just kind of diffusing all of the arguments that they try to bring against him. And it says they just couldn't dispute with him. He was, he was, he was too good, full of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit had, had gifted him in order to, uh, to meet this challenge. And so that was the Jews' opposition. And so because they weren't able to dispute with him um, from Scripture, we see that they have a plot against him. So this is the Jews plotting. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. So this is a little bit different because remember that the council had come together and they're like, we need to do something with these people. But what were they afraid to do? They were afraid to, to do what with the apostles while they were teaching? Yeah, they were, they were afraid. Even though they did, they did arrest them, but they were afraid of taking them by force. Um, where here, it's kind of now the people, it's, it's not coming from the leadership. It's coming from those that are within these synagogues that are going and seizing them and saying, hey, we're bringing you to the leadership. Undoubtedly, the leadership probably had some hand in this, whether sowing seeds of discord and maybe, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, expressing their concerns, you know, individually. See how those kind of political, you know, uh, talents kind of weave through. Um, but Stephen is grabbed and brought before the council. Now, what was this great council called? You guys remember? What's that? The Sanhedrin, right? And so, whenever we saw. Uh, we see that the elders and the scribes, um, that it typically means that the, the, the official council that heard um, matters and judged upon them, which was the Sanhedrin. Now, did this seem like this was spontaneous? Like they're hearing Stephen and they're like kind of brought up together? Or does it seem like this was planned beforehand? Yeah, right? Because it says they secretly instigated men who would do these things. All right, you know, you go over here and you do these things and we'll grab them and... You know, try to try to bring him, and we'll bring him before the council. And we just need to put a stop to this. Now, is this uh, following Gamaliel's plan of just let it be, let it die out? No, no. Now, maybe again, the leadership is like, well, we can't do anything. But if the people bring him towards us, you know, then maybe we could do something. And that's, I think, what we're seeing played out. Um, and so, what was their tactic to entice other people? <coughs> Was it reason? Was it sound argumentation? Or does it seem more like emotional appeal? Emotional appeal. Calling his teaching false. Yeah, so because it, it says, you know, we're, you know, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, right? Just kind of like those high, you know, statements like, oh, you're sinning, right? But not having any clarity about what those things are. We'll get like slight clarity, but we don't really get anything specific when he hears charges that come before him. Yeah, you're just blaspheming. You're, you're speaking against God um, and what God's doing. And so nothing direct, nothing pointed. And again, just trying to emotionally stir up people. It's the same thing that they did with Jesus when they brought him before 
uh, Pilate, right? That now he's going against Caesar, right? He's trying to stir up, you know, uh, um, people to go against Caesar, and that wasn't the case at all, right? There wasn't any specific charges. It was just these emotions that they could stir up the crowd with. And so now we see specifically the Jews' accusation. Verse 13, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Again, you know, these accusations that are brought, that like he never stops talking about the fact that Jesus is going to destroy this place and then he's going to take all of Moses' customs and just, you know, do away with them. Like everything we've based our life on, they're trying to undo, right? <laughs> like this one guy is going to, could topple, you know, thousands of years of Jewish history and what God has been doing. So again, you see kind of what, uh, where, who they place their trust in, right? They're in power, but they're worried that, and, and if they truly believe that God had placed them sovereignly there, and if you look back at Jewish history, I mean, you can see all the things that, Jew, you know, the Jews were almost near extinction at several places in their history, but they managed to be, you know, survive. And these guys are now in power and in leadership, and they should just continue to trust that if God wants them there, you know, that he's got a plan, that he's going to bring his Messiah, um, that he's going to rule and overthrow uh, the governments and all of these things. But you see, like, they're not, they're not doing that. They're not trusting that God is involved. And they're, they're pointing now the blame at, you know, these individuals. Again, remember, priests are now starting to, to be swayed over to Jesus. So they got to appeal to something a little bit more substantial than just doctrinal differences. This is going to just, you know overthrow our, our entire way of life. And we see that in politics, you know, people speaking hyperbole and saying, you know, just making these outrageous statements uh, on, on polar opposite sides um, instead of where reason is, somewhere, you know, often in the middle, a little bit more nuanced. And so the, what were the accusations? So first accusation is that Jesus is going to what? Destroy the temple, right? Okay. They, they have placed a high emphasis in, in the, their temple. Has their temple been destroyed already? Right, yeah, a couple times that, we've, that, that, that in Jewish history the temple had been destroyed. Now, this is Herod's temple, and so, you know, who's to say that it wouldn't be destroyed again? But that this Jesus is going to come and destroy the temple. Now, did Jesus teach that at all? He said something about a destruction of a temple, but what was it? His himself, yeah, and you see that in John, uh, that they, the Jewish leaders even had a problem with that when Jesus was talking about it. And that was the accusation that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. And, he, you know, and, the, and John had to say, well, he was actually referring to himself, that his temple will be destroyed in three days. Um, you know, Because it's like, it's taken a lifetime for us to build this thing. There's no way he could do that. And so that he'll destroy the temple. You think if somebody just said, I'm going to destroy the temple, like if I stood outside and I was like yelling, like, I'm going to destroy this building with my bare hands, everyone would be like, I don't know, what's, you know, what's he doing? This is a time before he had uh, explosives, you know, maybe I could have something, you know, hidden in a truck or van, but for the most part, they'd be like, well, what are you going to, how are you going to destroy this thing, just one individual with weapons, you know, at that time? So, that, again, so again, they should look at this as just kind of an, uh, un, like a, 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 a crazy man talking. Like, why should there be any validation? But they're actually giving validation to this. 
that Jesus will destroy it. And what was the other thing? Referring to Moses. It changed the customs. Changed the customs, right? Now, customs are built off of, you know, are built off of Scripture, but they not, aren't Scripture themselves, right? There's things that the Jews did, and we'll see as we go through Acts that, that God is going to kind of change things or say, you know, I'm going to expand how you, you know, I relate to you and you relate to other people. But some of their customs were, ended up being barriers to keeping people out. We see that there are barriers again between the Hebrews and the Hellenists, right? Even though they both would have followed, uh, uh, followed Judaism, they would have started to make distinctions amongst themselves just by how they spoke. And so, so that is the accusation. It's kind of interesting, right at the end it says, and they were looking at him as he was kind of standing there, and it says, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. What do you think that indicates? It's kind of an interesting description. He's got the face of an angel. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, I think normally like we would look at that and say like uh, that maybe his innocence, and because that's I think how we would um, look at somebody like he's got an angelic face. Usually, like if somebody's sleeping, you know, your baby's sleeping or something, and that would be kind of the idea of innocence. I think there's some something to do with that. Um, I think when we say the, the face of an angel, that there was maybe like a manifestation that they visibly saw that was indicative of other times in Scripture where we see angels. Um, <clears throat> Moses, when he came down from his experience with God, he came down, what was his appearance? He had this shiny face, he had to put a veil over it, right? And so you might say, well, that seemed like a distinct uh, thing that happened with Moses. And so was that something indicative of other people? We say that's an example of something that happened then. Um, if you read Ecclesiastes 8.1, it says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So it's kind of interesting, like Solomon described that, right? Wisdom kind of, you know, has this, you know, like uh, there's a, a confidence. There's something that you just can't go again. There's a brightness about a person, but it actually might be a physical manifestation similar to Moses. Because when angels are described, there's several places that when angels are seen, they either, they either have, they have a bright appearance, either in their clothing, or they have their face was shining. And one of those examples was an angel in J, uh, Judges 13 when came to tell Samson's father about Samson's birth, that he's going to be this Nazarite son, he's going to have this, you know, uh, things that are, are described about him. But the angel had a, had a face that shone like the sun. In Revelation, you see angels that their face are shining like the sun. And so we have that kind of description. And so there might be this, this you know, as they're looking at Stephen, something struck them um, about his appearance uh, that hopefully when they now hear what he's going to say, that they... Would listen. Eight one, eight one. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a really interesting verse. And then as you read like uh, the rest, it talks about the wickedness of uh, kings. So um, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting how it how it fits along with that. But it'd be a stretch to say it's a direct application. Um, and so now we get to Stephen's accusations. So this is a long chapter. We're going we're gonna to read through it, and I might just have to stop and say, okay, we'll, we'll pull the parachute and, and cut this. But I, I kind of want to read through it. Um, there's not much to really elaborate on or say, but, but some major themes as Stephen really kind of recounts, like, 
in most of their Old Testament history. You know, he speaks a lot of the accounts that happen in Genesis and Exodus. Um, uh, but as we hear Stephen's accusations, right, he's being accused of, of one thing, and so then he kind of levels an accusation against them, but he starts with kind of a history lesson. Because in verse seven, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? And this is what Stephen replied. Now, remember, Stephen was accused of, of promoting, destroying the temple, and changing Moses' customs. And so, as he recounts Jewish history, he starts with Abraham. So he doesn't start all the way from Adam and talk about the flood or anything like that. He starts with Abraham, their history, and how it began. Um, you're going to see kind of a few themes. And this is kind of hard to outline specifically, which is why I just kind of want to read through and, and say, but I, I'm going to kind of go through like these five steps as Stephen has kind of labeled, you know, has argued um, kind of the progression of Jewish history. But here's kind of a few themes that we're going to see. There's a pattern of God reaching from outside. Um, you know, he, he is going to these people and he is directing them about what is going to happen. And he either comes to them through dreams, through angels, or through some other, other direct revelation. Okay? Often, with that, God is changing how he is going to interact with his people. That we're going to see some sort of change about how like, people normally would interact with God, with each of these examples. There's also a pattern of the people rejecting what God is trying to do. Okay, so I want you guys to see that, that it's like God telling them, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, it's usually coming from outside, some sort of revelation. I'm going to kind of change things, elaborate things, add things uh, to what I'm doing. And there's often a resistance to what God is doing, often from the people, but sometimes from the outside. Because remember, they say, you're trying to change our customs. You're trying to change this temple. You're trying to destroy these things. And, and Stephen's not necessarily negating that, but saying, you know, God's in the business of doing some of these things. So the first thing is we see that there's a promise of a nation in, in the land. I'm just going to read, you know, some of these verses, and I, I don't tend to say, I mean to say anything, you know, uh, comment too much on this, so um, we can get through it. But he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land, and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he, Abraham, went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Again, there's a promise made to Abraham this is going to happen, and he didn't go directly to uh, Canaan, but kind of stopped along the way and waited until his father died. And all these things, and if you know the story of Abraham, so we'd have to go back and, and do a lot, of, a lot of looking into it. It was promised a son, but he was really old, and even Sarah laughed at him and said, there's no way I'm going to have a son, right? There was a little bit even like internal opposition. But Abraham trusted in God and that God would build a nation 
But he, he never saw a nation. He never saw the land. It's just one guy. That's it. One son. That's all he had. And so God has said, this is what I'm going to start, and it starts with you. The second step is that next we're going to see a building of a nation. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Just real quickly, what was, a, what was the vision or dream that Joseph had? You guys remember when he was little? Like, what, what he had? Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. I mean, in 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 short, he was given these these different dreams that essentially his brothers and his father would bow down to them. Right. Now, this is this, we find out. You know, this is what God has given them, and it took over the years to just confirm. Like Joseph has been given this gift to interpret dreams. That these dreams are given by God, and he he says that these aren't my. This is not my interpretation. This is God's interpretation uh, of these things, and that they would be there. So his brothers rejected what God was doing early on. He says the patriarchs. It's kind of interesting. Like that's the way that Stephen has mentioned that. If you think like. You know, what would have been a better family situation was like he had these dreams and they would have been so like, well, tell me more and maybe foster these things and see like, you know, maybe he's got other dreams that would have come come true. And like, how how is it that we, you know, would be able to serve under you? And, you know, but God had a plan through this whole thing about how it would come about. And the whole purpose of getting him into Egypt was what? What's that? To save the people right from a famine. But at that time, only 75 people went. Is that a nation? Not quite. It's better than one, right? It's better than one. But as soon as they got into Egypt, they were protected, given a certain area. The Egyptians didn't really want to, you know, inter, inter, um, mingle with the uh, uh, the Israelites, and so they flourished and they became grew into a nation. Until we see that there were some people that uh, that you know, a Pharaoh that didn't know them. So we kind of move into the next thing. So the first one, Abraham was promised the land. 
And, and, but that's all he saw was uh, one, one son, promised the land of nation. Through Joseph, even though there was some resisting about God telling them this is what's going to happen, the people were like, no way, that's not going to happen. But God said, you know what, I'm gonna, it, I'm, it's happening. You know, whether you're going to go along for, with this or not, and the whole purpose was to build this nation. Step three <clears throat> was to move the nation into the land, because they became a nation, but they don't have the land yet. And so this Pharaoh, verse 19, he dealt shrewdly with our race, and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended his oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So I've got a little bit more to say this, but just kind of pause, right? God had made these miraculous circumstances that Moses wouldn't die. In fact, he would be adopted, right? During time that the Pharaoh was like, We need to destroy his sons. He actually adopts one of these Israelite sons through his daughter, right? Bizarre like how that happened, how God works, right? So he's brought into Egypt, so he is trained in their customs, he's trained in all of their education, because at this time, right, who would have been the upper class? The Egyptians. And one of them would have been in their place. Now Moses has a heart for the Israelites, as we see him defending his brothers, and that would have been one of those times that you would think the people would be like, now we have somebody that can maybe uh, lead us and take us out of this land. But right, that's not how God worked, and that's not how the people worked, because the people rejected him. Instead of saying, like, maybe this is somebody who feels for us, he's educated as an Egyptian, so maybe he's got some um, pull or sway that we don't have, and maybe we could come out of this oppression, and maybe we could actually do, you know, go where God wants us to go. But that's not how it happened. And so through opposition... To what God was doing, we see this kind of develop further, right? So he fled. Verse uh, 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. 40 years, right, (laughs) from when this happened. That's a long time. He was already 40. He's now 80 before God's like, okay, I'm going to bring you back. Um, So it's a long time to be kind of in between jobs, right? So now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for this place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now I now come, I will send you to Egypt." 
This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt. Same as Stephen. Uh, not in Egypt, though. At the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So another 40 years uh, was Moses doing these things. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to the angel to speak to them, uh, or sorry, to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So again, we'll just, we'll just pause right there. So like they, he, you know, so it could have been that 40 years earlier, or you know, when he was 40, instead of being rejected, that maybe he could have you know, led them out. But, God, you know, but that wasn't God's plan, right? And God had to like, prepare Moses for this. So you know, this was part of God's plan, that he would you know, send them out to be a shepherd and then kind of rebuild him up to go back and lead the people out. just wasn't the right timing. But then Moses leads them out, and instead of saying, right, they, they go to the wilderness, and then instead of saying, like, all right, um, we're going to go and, and take over the promised land, the people like, reject that idea, which leads them to wandering for 40 years. And so and they, they grumble and complain and say, let's go back to Egypt. So instead of, again, embracing what God is doing, they resist and they push back, even though there are visible signs and visible wonders. And remember, Moses at this time said, there will, there's going to be someone coming after me. Because right, the leadership that Abraham's speaking to like reveres Moses, right? They're, they're saying, you know, Stephen's trying to, rever, you know, overthrow things of Moses. But he's like, don't remember this Moses promised somebody who would come, who would be a prophet and a redeemer. It's not him. So, but they want to go back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what he has become of him. And they made a calf in these days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Repham, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And so we say, again, just, there's just rebellion in the hearts of the people, especially when God is at work. Rebellion just immediately pops up, and it spreads. It spreads amongst the people. While Moses is on a cloud talking to God, there again, and we know this story, they're making a God out of their own image. They're just rebellious hearts, even when God, and maybe even especially when God is in their midst. Fourth step. Is to build a temple, to, you know, next step, you know, to, to move into the land and build a temple. Verse 44, our fathers had uh, the tent of witness in the wilderness. So uh, when they were wandering, they built the tabernacle. Called that, he's, that's what he's calling the tent, of, uh, the tent of witness. Just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with them. Uh, with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So it's kind of interesting because Stephen points out the fact that like God had kind of moved them from this tabernacle that God said, I want you to build. And then I want you to, you know, and then David said, I want to build you a permanent house. Now, God never said, I want a permanent house. But David said, I want to do this for you. And Solomon built this grand temple that uh, was the tabernacle, a place for God to rest and to be. And so God did uh, rest there. Um, but he just wanted to reiterate the fact that, like, listen, you know, I may... Uh, this may be a kind of a place where you can come and consult me, and if this is a place to come and worship this central um, temple as a, as a place to come and praise me, I just want you to know that I'm not bound by just this temple, right? He says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, right? What kind of house can you build for me, right? Did not my hands make these things? Your hands can't build me a house, because my hands built you the things that you are building for my house. So, you know, again... You might reveal, so Stephen's kind of using this to say, you might revere this temple, but again, this wasn't even Solomon's temple. This is like, you know, third generation temple. And this temple is something that God says, you know, don't limit yourself just here at this temple, in this place, alone. But again, they resisted. The people resisted. And we know in their history, which Stephen doesn't say, but they went and worshipped other gods and were, you know, taken away in captivity. And so step five is to bring a Messiah, right? This person that, that Moses would have, would, have, would have pointed to, it's really kind of the next step in God's plan is to bring this Messiah. And so this is where Stephen levels the accusation. He says, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Right? <laughs> There was uh, Joseph, there was Moses, and there's plenty of others that we can refer to, the major prophets, things like that. And it says, And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So that one came, and now he's been killed. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You think that I'm overthrowing the customs of Moses? You're overthrowing what God is doing. And you're overthrowing those whom God has sent. But it's a part of your history. You've done it all along, and you're doing it here again. And so we'll find out what happens to this. But as we kind of like leave, as you kind of, you know, you know, you know what happens to this. But I want to spend some time kind of talking about this because then it leads to kind of the, the next thing. But... You know, he says, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, they're all given divine instructions and they were resisted by their own. You know, there was some outside opposition, Pharaoh, but you know, honestly, the worst of it was from the people themselves. It's expected that outsiders will oppose you, but those on the inside, those are probably the ones that hurt the most. And those are the ones that grieve Moses, especially the ones we see so much. And God was clearly seen walking with each of them. Right? They made prophecies and they came true, but there was plenty of kings and plenty of people that were like, yeah, but you know, especially Moses, Pharaoh kept resisting, the people kept resisting, even though clearly signs had been given and things had been given that maybe God is working and maybe God is taking that next step. 
Is it to throw everything out? No, it's just building upon and moving us further along the line of what God is doing, how he wants to relate to us. He's not just going to relate to one guy, Abraham. He wants to relate to a whole nation and eventually the whole world. But he's taking steps clearly and he would have gotten there quicker, right? The, the Israelites could have gotten to the promised land quicker if they didn't resist and they just trusted the Lord. And so Stephen accuses his audience of similar rebellion and he rebukes them for rejecting Jesus and he calls them uncircumcised hearts and ears. What was that term? If you were uncircumcised, who did that refer to? So yeah, the Philistines are specifically like just Gentiles at this time, right? They were uncircumcised. And that would have been like to tell a religious person that you are like a Gentile, that was, you know, that was probably the worst thing that you could have called them. And he is leveling those accusations that, you know, you may be circumcised physically, but your hearts and your ears are circumcised. You are just like the Gentiles who worship gods made out of their own hands, you know, and, and uh, re, you know, that uh, basically you're not, you know, worshiping the Lord that you know. And so they could have either taken that and said, huh, maybe you're right. But we'll find out what happens. It's unfortunate what happens with Stephen, but, um, but that's the groundwork. And so I just kind of wanted to go through that, that, that kind of big, his accusations back to them. So we'll kind of just recap some of those things. We'll leave that in our hearts. But just if we kind of step back and say, like, what, you know, how can we apply this to our own lives? You know, the fact that, like, there's often things that God's doing in our lives that we just, like, resist, right? We resist change. We resist some of these things. That we should just, you know, try to be a little bit more open to what God is doing. Change is hard for us, um, but hopefully, you know, we can submit ourselves to what the Lord is doing. But it's also, when you know, we, we talk to other people about Jesus who don't know Jesus, that is just the, that is just the gut reaction, is just to resist and to push back. And just to understand that, that God, you know, will, in His own timing, right, as He's speaking to this Jewish leaders, we know that, over time, since the last time the apostles spoke to these leaders, and the time before that, because they had been rested a couple times, some of these had heard these messages about Jesus, and some of them are now finally turning to Jesus. Um, so patience, patience with them. It's a part of our fabric of the fall and what's happened with us, that we, we rebel against God. And so we should repent to that and know that it's even in our own hearts as being redeemed, but also to know that is kind of just the natural reaction of those uh, who know Jesus. And sometimes they go to violent ends, and we'll see that next week. Any questions or final thoughts? It was, it was a big, big chunk to go through, but uh, hopefully it was instructive to kind of go through in those big chunks. You know, back in Matthew 24, when Jesus said these rocks will fall down, mm-hmm. was that what they were referring to here about the temple being destroyed, or was that... <laughs> You mean where, where they're saying he's accusing them of, yeah. of Jesus of coming and destroying the temple? Right. Yeah, I don't know if it's, you know, because Jesus was talking about himself, his okay. temple. And so I don't know if that's that teaching that has just been kind of like circulated around is like rumor, like, oh, they believe this thing and falsely attributed. Or if it's because the apostles were there and that Jesus would overturn the temple, that Stephen would have heard that teaching as well and, and, and uh, would have voiced those things as well. Like this temple you see, these rocks you see, it's coming down. He could have been, you know, um, he could have been saying those things, uh, repeating those things, but we just don't know. We don't know which, which one it is. Um, but there, that is truth. Now, was Jesus coming back to turn over those rocks? 
Jesus never said, I'm coming back and doing this. Uh, but but it, would, it would happen. He said, these rocks, what, you know, what you, you think is beautiful and you place your faith in, um, is really is coming down. So maybe Stephen uh, is, is under fire with some of that as well. That's a good question. We don't know. So, all right, we'll uh, pack up our chairs and uh, make our way.